Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. And just in case you're not aware, this is the auditory and visual epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. I'm joined today with Charlie Vela. Charlie, do you think that this episode is going to help people achieve a life of freedom, choice, and abundance? I think this episode is going to fundamentally shift how people are thinking about the future. That, that's where I'm going to go way harder than what you put down there. I think this is an episode you don't finish without being different. I, I would I would agree with that. You know, we talked about stuff in here that is not getting talked about. We talked about stuff in this episode that will, as you say, radically change the way you think about not only business, not only property, but also your life. I think this if if you if you're not that deeply moved by this episode, I would suggest listening back to it again and sitting down, just sitting down and having a listen to it. Because if you can understand the, the the trends that we talk about in this episode, you're going to be able to position yourself to live a, a much more prosperous and abundant and fulfilled life. Completely agree. And one of the points I would just love to emphasize here, it's like a lot of the things individually we speak about in this episode, I think people are going to go, yeah, I know that. Yeah, I know that. But I don't think they necessarily grasp well enough the layered effect of when you start combining the concepts and ideas in this episode, just how powerful it is. Absolutely. And you know what's really cool is it it, it, it brings a mechanical aspect to a deeply held belief that I have that we can all have whatever we want in life as long as we have the ability to decide what that is. And we're at a precipice now, and we say it in the episode, an inflection point where you have the choice to take advantage of this or not. And I would suggest that this is an opportune time for you to start taking action. I'm like shaking my legs under the table because I'm like excited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's super good. It's super good. Look, I, I'm I'm convinced that you're going to be supremely impacted by listening to this episode, watching this episode, or consuming this in whatever way you decide to com- com- consume it. And so, if that is the case, and if you are impacted, then I have a simple request. Firstly, if you want help in terms of property to take advantage of the things we talk about in this episode, I really encourage you to reach out and book a call. Not not to not to jump and not to be sold to or pitched to, but so that we can help you understand what the roadblocks are and to to help you understand how you can best maneuver yourself to take advantage of these kind of scenarios. And to do that, just head to uh, dashdot.com.au forward slash discovery and book in a 15-minute call. We'll just have a chat with either myself or one of the team to help you understand what the best next step looks like for you. Further to that, if this has been impactful, then I definitely encourage you to share this with someone. If you get this via email, forward the email to someone so they can watch it. Um, if you are listening to this on Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, make sure you subscribe. That helps us raise up the up the the, the chart list and the ranking, which helps other people to learn about this kind of stuff too. Um, you know, just let us know. Find a, find a way to share this with someone else and impact somebody else's life because I think it's super important. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. You're with your pals Goose and Charlie. Charlie, how are you today? I am excellent, Goose. We're out of the Melbourne lockdown. I am uh, enjoyed my first day of freedom yesterday, although I did end up with a little bit of sunstroke, so I was like paying the price, but so happy to be uh, back in the world. It was it was quite funny actually because I actually had a conversation with you yesterday. You definitely seemed a little bit strung out. So it's quite funny that you finally that on the one day that you the, finally you get to leave the house and the sun pretty much just completely fries you out. So it's the kind ironies. Of, it's kind of it's kind of like when you know like a mole is emerging from underground for the first time. It's like, ah! <laughs> 
Oh, I slept very well last night, though, so I was pretty stoked. But um, nonetheless, we're here to talk about property and business. And I will say a big thank you to the people that have reached out again. Some of the feedback has been just sensational. Um, so big, big thanks. How are you doing in the world? Mate, I'm great. I'm great. Life is life is good. There's not a lot. I can't find anything to complain about. I get We get to run a really cool business, which uh, serves people really well and helps people do amazing stuff. I get to have awesome conversations and create podcasts and interview people. And man, I, and I get to, I've, well, I've been, been able to enjoy a little m- bit more freedom than you guys down south. So <laughs> rub it in, rub it in. <laughs> but that's actually the perfect segue because I actually feel in the last probably couple of weeks, we've had some of the most interesting conversations we've ever had. Like conversations that have actually like, I don't know, when you finish talking to someone, you actually just sit down and like stare into the abyss for a bit. <laughs> Or you need a little bit of a nap, or you like just like oh, is that is that is that what's been happening to you, Charlie? We've been chatting, and then you've just been staring into the business abyss, catatonic, and needing a nap. Because I'm not sure if that's good. <laughs> I, I just feel that um, the world is an incredibly interesting place right now, and things that we thought were going to take decades have been moved uh, tremendously quicker. And I brought up, I guess, the theme and idea for this episode is the trends you need to be aware of. And I'm going to say in the uh, short term, these are the trends over the next one to three years that I think are going to become incredibly important in both business and property. And we're going to share this with the audience today. Absolutely. You're going to need to anchor me a little bit because I'm I'm going to have a, a propensity to go very, very tangential in this one. It's it's. What's happening right now is the single greatest uh, human trend in Australia and subsequently the property trend and, and subsequently business trend, uh, certainly this century. So, and it's something that not only am I observing but also participating in from and supporting others to participate in in, in very meaningful ways on lots of different levels. How awesome. Now, before we get into it, I know you're eager to jump into some of the trends though, but I kind of want to set the stage on something. Um, Mm -hmm. For anyone that's ever looked at a chart, right, like a a share market chart or maybe the S&P 500 or whatever it is, you'll notice that in a lot of these charts, they've got like a linear pattern or you can see something where they move across and every now and again, you'll see what I call an inflection point. You'll see it where there's like an impact where things are, are moving at a very, very different rate. Something I've observed, and I know you've observed in the side of property as well, is that we've kind of hit an inflection point. Yep. Like it's not, and I'm not talking about in the stock market or in property, but in life in general, is there's just a huge amount of change all happening at once at a pace we couldn't have. And I just think this is going to turn into the biggest opportunity for some and the biggest disappointment for others. Are you feeling and on the same page with me on the idea of just how much change is occurring in both of these? Yeah, and I, me, me personally, I think it's awesome. Like I, me, me personally, I think the the shift that is happening uh, within our society broadly is awesome. Now, don't get me wrong; there are things that there are challenges that we face in a global sense. Uh, there are things that are not right on a on a you know psychological, spiritual, you know economic level in a variety of different ways, but broadly speaking, I think that we're on we're in one of the most exciting shifts. Certainly that I've certainly that I've had the ability to observe. Maybe maybe I've maybe there have been shifts like this before, but I haven't had the ability to observe them in, in this way. So yeah, I think it's I think it's awesome. I would say the same. In two thousand and eight, I was on another planet. Like I was just not in the same uh, pace of life. I was more concerned with what my weekend looked like 
uh, than anything in business or property or anything bigger. So like I didn't appreciate what was going on nor understand it. So yep. there's no way I could have taken advantage of it. This time around though, very, very different story. So let's get into these trends. We've got three outlined, but I suspect there'll be 10 within the three <laughs> <laughs> as these conversations tend to go. So the first one I think is the most interesting and I would love to get your perspective on and we'll do a bit of back and forth from both arenas of uh, business and property mm. is technology. Yep. I think technology is the most interesting one uh, we may cover today. What's your view, and we'll start with property, in how technology is affecting property? Well, look, for, for a start, it's changing the game with how people invest. You know, like if you go back, say, 10, 20 years, uh, 30 years or anything like that, the whole like where should I invest in property, why should I invest, it was a dark art. Like people just didn't know. They were just like, well, I don't know. I guess we just put our put out put our money in bricks and mortar and see what happens. There was there was no meaningful way. There was no meaningful way unless you were a statistician or some, you know, a deep researcher like a career researcher. There was no meaningful way to realistically understand what you should do, where you should invest, and and why. Um, and I think there's a huge shift that's happened there. You know, the reality is. Whilst uh, we, whilst my view is that um, technology can only ever take you a certain distance when it comes to property, um, the reality is though when you can start looking at trend data for the last say 20, 30 years, applying that um, with artificial intelligence algorithms to give you leading indicators of where and why the next areas might be be the best place to invest. It changes the game massively. Like it, it, it allows you to to uh, get a leading edge advantage. Like where where people like our parents just wouldn't have been able to. Like people like our parents would be like, firstly, I why would I invest anywhere that is not somewhere that I could drive to? Secondly, how would I even know where to invest? And it was really just a big gamble. Um, so I think now one of the biggest one of the biggest trends that I've seen is is the property technology trend. Now that's not just in uh, property research and uh, and you know data analysis and stuff, which I think is tremendously important. It's allowing us to uh, pinpoint locations with with much deeper accuracy. Um, there are uh, there's information that we can gather around you know even a specific house that previously was unreachable. Um, unless you physically went there. So, I mean, just just using one very simple example, what, one of the reasons that, you know, one of the long-held beliefs why you would never buy a property site unseen is because what if you bought somewhere and then you walked into the backyard and you could see like some big kind of uh, electrical tower or some high voltage power line, you know, like, and that was a real concern. It's like, how would you know? Like, how would you, how would you really know? Maybe there was just some, well, guess what? We now have like, high resolution satellite imagery and we can zoom in and I can tell you what type of plant exists 300 meters from the back fence, let alone whether there's a power line. Not only that, we can see all of the underground services and navigate all that kind of stuff without having to get town planners involved. We can kind of do all of this stuff and it's really changed the game and how we approach that. But then when you start thinking about property technology more broadly, it, it actually applies on a much on, on, on many other levels as well. You know, you've got property technology integration with stuff like property management, with stuff like finance and things like that, you know. And, and so there are there are a lot of different ways that technology is accelerating the capacity for investors to get ahead in, in a way that I, that I don't I don't see in other investment classes. Like I don't see that same kind of advancement in things like, I don't know, 
gold and even shares. You know, there are there are there are there are artificial intelligence algorithms and stuff for shares, but I just don't think you can get the the depth and complexity of understanding the the root mechanics of of what is actually going on with these assets that you're buying. So I think it's I think it's huge. It's been very beneficial not only to us individually, but also to all of our clients. You know, that there's a there's a there's a reason that uh, a lot of people think that I'm talking nonsense when I talk about the fact that you know we're getting our clients are getting like 15% plus growth in the first 12 months, but it's not it's not a it's not made up and b it's it's not magic. It's just it's just working out how to use technology to give us the information that we need to then be able to overlay that with human analysis to then make the right effective purchasing decisions. So I think it's huge. I think it's huge as well. I'll give a couple of examples I think are interesting. I, I bought a property in the last 12 months and we did a virtual tour. So we had some, like you couldn't have done that previously. And I actually think this is going to become more common. I think this will be uh, something that gives investors more confidence buying interstate, for example. The second one is um, ANZ this year, which I probably shouldn't name them. I have uh, much to say about this bank. But rather than being identified in person, actually face ID'd me for my recent loan. And I was like, wow, they got that through quick. So these are like the little ones where I feel like some of the archaic systems are going to become a lot better. But I want to ask a question into this one because this is probably what I think is the most valuable part of this. Everyone can accept technologies improving and getting better. From an investor point of view, what I'm curious about is do you believe the uptake is common in investors and does it give you an edge to be in front on the technology side in this space? Yeah. So, for, for, first answer is no, the uptake is not there. Uh, and, and second answer is yes, if you can utilize these um, resources, then it absolutely gives you a leading edge advantage. Now, there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of reasons why uh, we uh, do what we do and we're very good at what we do, partly because of the investment. You know, the reality is the our, our as a business, our investment into uh, technology that allows us to to do what we do in remote locations. I think we could talk about we'll talk about uh, locations and migration and geography in a minute. So I think this is actually a bigger and more important thing to probably to, to to sink into. Our ability to do that is based on the fact that we invest you, you know significant amounts on an annual basis into research and into and not just research but also tools and technology and all of this kind of stuff to give us that kind of leading edge advantage. The reality is the average investor doesn't A, have the capacity to do that, B, doesn't know what to actually invest in, and C, it just doesn't see the value in it because they're not actually doing it at scale. And so there's a huge advantage if you can use that, but I would say 99% of property investors are not benefiting from those uh, advancements. It's really going to be a fascinating thing, and I, I would relate this in other areas. The serious investors are the ones that pay attention to this, really stand to benefit in a lot of ways. Like yep. I just see this big technology wave coming, and I, I guess I would say the emphasis that both of us are making on the property side so far is that to get comfortable with it, like this is happening, and it's like your resistance to change on this will be at your disadvantage. Yeah, totally. But I think there's, I, th- I think that, the, and this this will circle it back to business and probably moves into the next point perfectly. The reality is that that like there are second and third order consequences to everything. So one of the biggest technological impacts of on property right now is actually an impact on business, which is actually helping to change the way people are living and where they're going. And, and that's that's the fact, like we're currently recording this now on video using a program called Zoom, 
most businesses have decentralized. And the reason for that is because we live in a much more high speed, much more connected world with huge advancements in our ability to communicate and transfer information. And it's this, it's this, it's this more global community environment that is actually not only changing, it's, it's changing business fundamentally, changing business and subsequently changing the way we operate in communities, which is subsequently changing the entire, you know, uh, growth pattern of the Australian property market. And this is, I think, the most important thing that we can talk about. Absolutely. So let's let's bring this one into business now, right? Yeah. So I'll share some perspective that I think is quite fascinating. I would love to pretend I am a was some sort of prophet that went virtual five years ago because I could see this upcoming. I couldn't. Reality is I just loved the lifestyle of uh, being a virtual business and having the flexibility to work from where I want. <laughs> so I'll preface that from there. But I, I think the most important trend that's happening right now in um, technology in the business space is actually internet infrastructure. Mm. I think it's probably the most dominant. I'll give some examples here like more internet speed, right, is really what we're talking about. More bandwidth, more people to achieve more high speeds at once has created the environment for companies to be in virtual. So that would be like number one. And I think you're seeing a huge amount of companies that were once central to a CBD. So big ones like Deloitte's announced they're keeping some of their team virtual now. So I see this massive, massive trend towards virtual business uh, resources and virtual business uh, services, products going through the roof. So I'll give you an example. Some of the things I really see uh, becoming more dominant are things like we're doing now where microphones, Zoom subscriptions, all of those um, cloud storage, like all these arenas, I think are going to see a big growth uh, trajectory over the next run. And I think we'll see some of the more traditional ones uh, fall away. So if you're in those spaces, I think it's interesting. From my own perspective of having a media company, a lot of companies uh, within Australia that, let's say, were doing in-person events mm. um, had to restructure their business models this year and they've made a big push into podcasting and YouTube channels and everything we already love to do within this business. But what I would say on that front is I can completely see that that will become a bigger part of it. They've seen the advantages of it. And not only that, it's because a lot of people like us Melburnians have been locked up, media consumption has been through the roof and I don't think that reverses either. I'm actually confident that media consumption is going to stay higher. Yeah, I I, I, I I agree with you, but I think there's also a different component there. It's not just it's not just virtual teams and media consumption. It's actually the ability for large organizations to communicate effectively. So 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 there are, you know, pretty much every state there are decentralization programs designed to move large government uh, departments into more regional locations. The function of that is to reduce infrastructure pressure in the capitals and to create a more broadly uh, balanced economy within the states. So, for example, you know there are there are like the ATO will move its and uh, uh, have satellite head offices in various different major regional centres. Um, you've got you got organisations like WorkSafe, which are doing the same. Now, the reason that they can do that now, where they never could before, is the speed of communication. Can you imagine if in 1970 you had the ATO was decentralised and was actually in 35 regional locations. Do you think it would have been effective to process tax returns and stuff? No, it just wouldn't have been. So this this kind of connectivity is actually driving not just remote teams, but also like in-house teams as well in a way that is, it is that has on-flow effects as well. Because if you have a large organisation like the ATO, which may move to a location like, um, I think it's one in Albury-Wodonga and a few different places like that, 
it's not just the workforce, right? So that you, you then start jobs growth in that area, which attracts more people to that area. And they're also burgeoned by the, the idea that they are actually more connected and it's much easier to speak to everyone else and everything like that now. But then it also has second and third order consequences as well, because there's large organizations that are in-house, which are decentralizing because they're more connected from a communication perspective, also then need to build new offices. And guess what? That affects the construction industry. So then there's second and third order consequences of the construction industry because, you know, then there's finance components and all this kind of stuff. And this is this is where you start to see this kind of very, very deep fractalization of what is coming from a technology perspective and how deeply it goes. It's so interesting, right? That, that I would never have thought that technology would be linked to the decentralization and migration of people into regional areas. Never. It's huge. I would have thought it would have had the opposite effect. I would have thought technology would have built up our cities more condensely. That was my view. I don't know why. Yeah, it's because we're constantly fed sci-fi kind of stuff where we live in these super techno cities, which are all fluoro and stuff like that. But the reality is it's just not what people want. So that brings us into our next trend uh, that we're looking at from here. So I think technology was a great place to start because it sets the stage of like why the next one is possible, yeah. right? which is uh, migration. Migration is the next trend I think we both believe in in a, in a huge way. On the basis that technology is going more regional, how do you see this playing out over the next one to three years on a migrational level? So th there's a lot to unpack here for a start. There is a lot to unpack here. So firstly, interstate migration is a larger driving force of the housing market than international migration, which may be a controversial thing to say, but it's just the facts. You know, there's roughly, let's just say there was previous to COVID, there was 400,000 international migration. There was 800,000 people would move interstate. Okay, so literally double the amount of people would move around interstate. So that drives markets more than international migration. Now, what happens with international migration is this, broadly speaking, not everyone's kind of going to follow exactly the same path, but broadly speaking, what happens is people move from overseas to one of the two major capitals, Sydney and, uh, Sydney and Melbourne, typically. Now, they may move to other places, but we'll, so we'll say typically move to Sydney and Melbourne. But the thing is, people don't stay in Sydney and Melbourne. Now, to say that people are leaving Sydney and Melbourne because of COVID would be uh, a misrepresentation. People have always been leaving Sydney and Melbourne. It's just a fact. Sydney loses between twenty-five to 40,000 people a year and has done every year. That's just the reality. People move out of the city. They go other places because there are other jobs. They have different lifestyle opportunities. There's, a, uh, you know, there's more affordable areas that they can live in, all of these other kind of things. Retirement climate. Exactly. It's, it's not a, exactly, but it's also, there's also, an, there's, there's two key factors, lifestyle and affordability. Lifestyle and affordability are the two key factors because here's the reality and we'll get, I'm going to circle this back into the technology component as well. You know, if you, you know, if the median house price in Sydney is a million dollars and then you could live somebody else somewhere and you could live somewhere else and buy a $500,000 house and you're going to have half the amount of debt. And if you can earn, if you can earn three quarters of the same amount of income, then you're actually going to have a higher net cash flow position in your household. Therefore, you're going to be able to live a more affluent existence, invest more and achieve financial freedom much sooner. You know, it's a very simple kind of mathematical position to take, but it's, it's true. Anyway, so people always have moved out of the cities. What's happening now is obviously we don't have uh, any net international migration or very, very, very small amounts, right? And also what is happening is that the 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 exodus from the city is is 
increased, right? So the speed has actually gone up, right? It's hasn't. It's not like it's just turned on a tap and people are suddenly leaving. They were already leaving. Now we just have some more people leaving. The reason more people are leaving is because people have suddenly realized that they can actually work from where they want from a lifestyle perspective. They can have a more affordable lifestyle. They can have a they have a better lifestyle and all that kind of stuff. And there's better connectivity. Now this is the these these two factors: lifestyle and affordability are the two single biggest driving factors in the entire property market right now. All of this relates back to other episodes that we've done on like psychographics versus demographics and all of this kind of stuff because it's all of that still rings absolutely true. But where people are going is they're saying, well, can I earn, for example, can I earn a Sydney wage um, but can I do that in a place like Mudgy? Like Mudgy's, Mudgy's going off. And you've got, to think about, you've got to think about a couple of things. It's not just digital connectivity. It's also infrastructural connectivity. Because whilst it might be easy to say, well, I mean, I could work, you know, I've got a job in Melbourne. I'm going to move to the Sunshine Coast or, or I'm going to move to um, outback New South Wales. The reality is if you kind of, a lot of people still want to have in the back of their mind, what if I do actually need to go to the office? What actually, you know, like we, we, we live in Sydney and I have meetings in Sydney from time to time. I'm currently in Yamba, right? So I'm going to talk about this as a microcosm. Yamba has grown by nearly 50% in the last five years. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Internet speed, they widen the highway and lifestyle. So it's, it's a much better lifestyle than pretty much, you know, any than any capital city. Um, the internet speed is there. We've been benefiting from that right now. We've been able to run our business remotely and it hasn't affected our ability to operate in any way, shape or form. They've increased the connectivity by road, which by proxy means you can get to the nearest airport much sooner. So if I had to go from Yamba to Sydney for a meeting, it would probably, if I factored in the drive time, the check-in time, the flight time, everything like that, it'd probably take me uh, two hours, maybe two and a half hours to get to Sydney for a meeting, right? So it's practical. Now, you've got to think about this from a practical level because not everyone can say, I'm going to disconnect from an office 100% of the time forever and I'm just going to work on Zoom. So it's about, okay, well, where are the rail links? Which is why there are, where are the rail links? Where are the airport links? Where, where is the internet speed like and everything like that? Because just because it's a good lifestyle and it's affordable doesn't make it practical, which is why things like the inland rail network are so interesting as well because what you're finding is the inland rail network is increasing connectivity with um Places like Narrabri, which has other infrastructure projects like gas plants and things like that. Um, you've got places like um, Gympie, which are on the receiving end of rail expansions and people can have a better lifestyle, live more remotely in a better country setting with better community feel, cheaper groceries, cheaper cost of living, cheaper, all of that kind of stuff. And they're still only going to be maybe two hours by uh, rail from Brisbane uh, and one hour from, from the Sunshine Coast and they can still go to the beaches. So you've got all these kind of factors that are driving things together and it's only really becoming a such a prevalent trend because of technology. What, what I'm really enjoying about this is thinking about the layers to it. Mm. So it's not just technology and, uh, for example, affordability, but when you layer that into connectivity now, so yeah. when we're talking about infrastructure, it's like now it's like it's really interesting. From a from a personal level, I've noticed in my friends group the mm-hmm. thought of affordability has started to become more dominant particularly as they have kids, they're thinking about, well, hang on, I can't work six days a week or maybe I want to spend more time at home or like how long can I work for? Like the, these types of things become much more fascinating. I'll, I'll throw something into this as well is that I think it's particularly interesting when you're really recognising what suburbs offer the upside of a capital city without the downside of uh, exorbitant costs in lifestyle and property prices. 
So that's really more evident here is that in the example you gave, is it, would you deem it feasible from where you are now that if you had to go to Sydney for two days a week, you'd almost say that that's a, an acceptable tolerance if you had to be in the city for something? Well, I have actually thought that. I have actually had those. I've actually been thinking about that. You know, like I won't. I won't beat around the bush. We live in Bondi normally. Bondi is amazing. What a great part of the world to live in, and it's awesome, right? But the cost of living is pretty high, and in fact, there are a lot of benefits from being in a smaller town like Yamba. It's got a nicer feel. It's quieter. The beaches are cleaner and less. There's, there's a lot of benefits to it, and I have actually thought, okay, well, functionally, what would the cost benefit analysis be if I did have to go to Sydney? you know, two days a week, how would I do that? And you know, I don't have an exact answer because you've got to work out on the mathematics of not only time, but also cost and where would you stay and do all of that kind of stuff. But is it functional and feasible? Well, it's not far off. It is not far off when you factor in all of the lifestyle cost and considerations, which is why, uh, and then you've also got the cost of lifestyle. Even if it did cost you maybe $200 a week more, for example, net, would you pay $200 a week more to live in a, a location which uh, was a little bit maybe fulfilling and quieter and more peaceful and a better place to raise your kids? There's all of these considerations. So I I absolutely think that it's um it's not only super interesting, but it's also really important to understand. Because if you think like that for mo- most, most people want more time, more freedom, more money. doesn't matter whether they're a business owner or a non-business owner or whatever the case may be. Now, if you've got a $100,000 income, and you want more cash, right? What is what is your capacity to get that cash? You, you've only really got a couple of options. Reduce your expenses or ask your boss for a raise, right? Or try and grow your business, right? Whatever the case may be. Bit of side so, hustle, Uber of, night. Exactly. So you can either like what you can either so basically you can either work harder to get more money. You can either, you can either, all right, all right, I'm gonna try and grow my business. So I'm gonna put in, I'm gonna exert more effort, more energy, more risk to grow the business. Or if you're not in business, I'm going to try and get a promotion at work and take on more responsibility, more workload, potentially work longer hours to try and get more money. Or you can reduce your expenses. So if if the average um, cost of mortgage to the household is about 30% of income, right, which is broadly true, and you've got $100,000 income, so you're roughly paying $30,000 in repayments. If you could go and chop that in half, if you could move somewhere else and chop that in half, even by rent vesting, for example, and chop that in half, or or even buy somewhere where you you, you literally half is half is expensive. Chop that in half to fifteen thousand dollars. That's fifteen thousand dollars you can add to your investment pool per year, which is going to allow you to drive your personal wealth journey much further ahead. I don't know a single person, business owner or non-business owner, that doesn't want to advance their personal wealth journey so they can live a more prosperous and more abundant life. And so if you can, you can, you've only got two options, reduce your expenses or essentially work harder to, to make more. This is for most people, there are ways to get better leverage and stuff like that. But when you're faced with those two vectors and then you can go, well, hang on, if I, by reducing my operating expenses, I've got a choice of either moving from where I am now to some crack den in the outer suburbs or why don't I just move to the beach? It suddenly becomes a very appealing proposition. And it's this train of thinking, which is actually singularly driving the most amount of, it's not just about beaches. It's not just about lifestyle. It's also about affordability, but it's this, it's this, Lifestyle and affordability edge combined with technology, decentralization of businesses, um, addition of infrastructure, and currently, like with the budget, this huge amount of regional and global infrastructure happening in in Australia 
when you combine all these factors together, it's it's allowing us to live in a way that we've never been able to live before. And it's truly fascinating. A little anecdot- anecdotally as well, I was reading an article uh, a couple of days ago, which was um, from a, I can't remember, so it was from, from a real estate agent basically. And he was he deals with sort of relatively high net worth individuals who all escaped places like Sydney and Melbourne during the, the pandemic, moved to their holiday homes in places like Byron Bay, for example. And now they're not coming back. They moved there temporarily to like ride out the the pandemic. And now they're like not coming back. They're putting their kids in schools and they're going, hang on a second. What? Hang on a second. For the last like five, six months, I've been able to do all this remotely. Why would why would I go back? And they're in, they're putting their kids in schools, they're selling their properties in Sydney, they're doing all of this kind of stuff. And I mean in, interestingly, I, I even had a, a, fr- a chat with a friend of mine who's a business owner, you know, goes you know, multiple seven figures a year. And I told him where I was and he was like, oh man, we're thinking about moving there. We're thinking about moving there. Should we go there? Should we go there? We're thinking about moving there. And he's in Sydney right now. He's never even been here and he's already gone. Yeah, we've, we've heard, we've heard, we've heard that that's the place to go. And it's just fascinating. This is the trend. How fascinating. What I'm kind of leaning into this conversation is going like there's government forces. Like we mentioned remote offices for like the ATO, right? Government is a big force in itself. Like their policy alone can shift economies or migration or whatever they choose. Then you've got um, business force. So at a business level, businesses are going, do you know what? We can do without the office. We can go virtual. Like they're putting the opportunities in place um, to push regional as well or more regional, decentralized, to your point. Um, and then thirdly is you've got the actual um, person. So anyone working a job or any worker or any family, will say from the – I don't want to use consumer. I don't really think that is the right level, but we'll call them consumers of property. They're sitting there and they're going, well, I could live a 10% um, – I could save 10% on my expenses or possibly more in moving out, and then I could also get a better lifestyle at the same time. So you've got double-layered forces pushing that. And then in turn, like you, you're stacking these on top of each other. By doing that, these regional places or more remote areas are actually now creating the better economies in themselves. Like as you mentioned, well, the schools. Well, the schools are now getting kids. The cafes and shops are now got more people at them. Like it's the, uh, what did you call it? The knock-on effect, the third and fourth order consequences yeah, that come massively. on the back of these. So I want to shift that because there's uh, a couple of questions within that I want to ask. So from your perspective in property then, does this become the way you think about investing over the next three years? Is it okay where I'm going to persist and look at where infrastructure is going or linkability or livability and put that into my investing strategy? And then on the reverse, does this make you look towards things like let's call the CBD of Melbourne where there are these apartment high-rises, which are like the opposite of what we're talking about is that's just in oversupply and we want to consider avoiding that in the short term. Yeah, the answer the answer to those things is both broadly yes in, in the answer to both, you know. So the, the the solution is not just, all right, should we just go buy somewhere near the beach? That's that's not the that's not the key. The key is to look at a variety of different factors and, and um we've kind of been touching on this with a very long series we've been doing on this podcast uh, called the Hunting Hotspot series where we talk about 
all of these kind of key factors. You know, there's urban renewal projects, infrastructure projects, um, lifestyle. Um, you, you know, there's there's affordability. There's kind of a variety of different things. You know, that, that you can kind of look at. And what you want to do is you want to look at how they layer up, right? So just because somewhere has a is in a tiny little beach town doesn't make it a good place to move to. Like what what it's but not going to. The ATO was putting an office there, and there's a new road going to the airport. Then you might go, oh, this is interesting. Totally. Totally. So interestingly, just for example, again, using another anecdote from where I am, I spoke to a cafe owner uh, yesterday and um, asked him like, you know, hey, how have you seen things change in Yamba over the past little, past little while? And I was kind of talking to him about property and stuff. And he said, well, it was really interesting. As soon as they announced that they were uh, expanding the highway, double, double lane highway, property prices jumped massively. That, that was the thing. That was the thing that caused property prices to jump. Now, I'm using that as one example. And I'm not suggesting everyone needs to go and pile all their money into Yamba. But to, to just look at that as an example, and you go, okay, well, where are infrastructure projects going? And why are they going there? What is, what is the supporting capacity for jobs growth? Because you've got to remember with infrastructure, just because someone builds a road doesn't change things, right? If there's no residual economic benefit, it doesn't really matter over the long term. It can matter only over the short term. So what I mean by that is the infrastructure must by proxy drive uh, uh, an expansion of commerce, an expansion of desirability. So, you know, in a, in a scenario like, you know, Bendigo is going very, very well again at the moment, largely because it's got uh, good infrastructure that's got good good connectivity plus affordable lifestyle. If you look at if you look at even a place like Toowoomba, for example, or even a place like Mudgee, like tiny little tiny little Mudgee is on the bit on the receiving end of not only a better lifestyle, good community, nice country environment, because not everyone wants to move to the beach. Now, some people want to move to the hills, tree change, and some people want you know to move to regional you know grassy like you know bigger you know more open and expansive country areas. So, that, but then you know, a place like Mudgee's got got rail connectivity on its way and all of that kind of stuff. That is going to then go make make it more desirable to be there. And on top of that, then commerce starts to expand. So when you can start to look at not only what is the what are the government programs, so urban renewal, decentralization, then what are the connectivity components of infrastructure, plus what is the affordability, relative affordability, plus what are the lifestyle drivers? And it really does start to change the game. Now you don't want to look at any one singular aspect of 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 one economic driver and say, oh, well, there's a there's a huge, big, spontaneous. New-. For example, I'll use an example. There's a there's a place called Port Port Augusta um, that I was looking at a while ago. It's very excited. You know, there's like there was seven billion dollars worth of uh, projects happening there, and I was like, oh my god, the yields were like twenty percent, and I was like, oh my god, this is great. Until I started looking into it a little deeper, and it was like, well, the jobs the jobs growth was only going to last for four years, and then they became static projects, and actually the the lifestyle wasn't that good, and you know, all of that kind of stuff, and then that's not sustainable. So you sort of need to then start thinking, okay, well, what's the sustainability of this location, and how long are these impacts going to last? And that is what can can really drive you. I mean, it's it's honestly it's it's changing it's changing the face of investing so so broadly that I think um, people need to completely reframe their their thinking. Can I throw a question into that or an idea? I would say. Yeah. So I'll hit you up with a scenario. I mean, we've mentioned Albury Wodonga, and let's pretend the ATO was moving there. I have no idea if they are. I will preface that, but let's assume they make that decision. Why not? Mm-hmm. So then they go. All right, we're going to need offices there. 
in the construction of that new infrastructure there, that could lead to, as we're kind of talking into the idea here, that is they might have a short-term run where there's a lot of building going on where there's a huge accelerated go- uh, growth, but mm. then statically it might not hold up. They, all those workers might move on to the next location. But Now, it might not be true for all with Rodonga, but that is a scenario that could unfold in some of these places as well. That that is that is true until you think about what the second and third order consequences are of that. Okay, so let's just use a scenario where that let's just use that as an example, right? So so new offices get be, built for in a in a regional center for a, a a large government department, right? So that employs more people in construction. So that put that so that money has to come from outside of that regional center to fund that in some way, shape or form, the money's going to come and that's going to flow into the community. So that's going to create more jobs, more liquidity, more cash flow. What's going to happen with that cash flow? That's going to fund uh, the, you know, the, more people going to, you know, uh, like con- consumables like cafes and bars and restaurants, which what's going to happen then? Well, there's going to be a desire for people to have better quality bars, cafes and restaurants, more entertainment facilities. What happens then? Well, the community starts to gentrify and it becomes more desirable. And what happens then people start then going well actually this tiny little regional town has actually got a bit of a vibe there's like a tapas bar and all of these kind of things that and actually this is actually not too bad so then more people start thinking well could i go there and in the process of spending the money that's coming externally the businesses expand more businesses happen more jobs are created more people need to move there therefore more people need more places to live the construction needs to happen to, to create more houses for those people to move to and this is the cycle that starts to feed itself does that kind of make sense now it does, but I've got a question on that though. Yeah. So let, let's throw in a scenario here and we'll throw in it. So I would say if you're in digital services, okay, yep. so let's pretend you're doing something like I do where I'm in media, you're you're making the uh, call that, hey, I can do this from anywhere now. Like it's really mm-hmm. become uh, common. I think from a business sense, your talent pool just massively increased as well because yep. a lot of these people that were working in cities are now going, oh, can I get virtual jobs that can match incomes? I think that's going to happen. But if you're, let's say, a cafe owner or a restaurant owner and you mm-hmm. previously, let's pretend, Burke Street, you've got a, um, a nice restaurant on Burke Street. Do you think the opportunity for some of the businesses that can't necessarily um, digitize hairdressers, although maybe some technology will come there, put a little hat on, cuts your hair, we'll see, um, or restaurants in these ones from here, do you think the opportunity for them as well is to get on board with these trends? Do you think their time in the CBD has turned and that from that type of environment, they should seek other opportunities as well. And this is pure opinion. We're obviously not advising restaurant owners uh, take this on board unless they're well-versed in their own decision-making or have good advisors. But if it was you and you had that restaurant, would you be looking regional at the moment? Do you think it's that big a move? It's a good question. So let's just say I owned a an Italian restaurant on Ligon Street in Melbourne. Let's do it. Okay, so let's say I own a, an Italian restaurant on Ligon Street in Melbourne. Do I, would I up stumps, sell that restaurant and go to a regional location and start a new restaurant? Is that that's kind of broadly the question? Yeah, well, I mean, if population is dwindling or leaving Melbourne, we suspect um, overseas migration is down. We're looking at all these kind of factors from the lockdown mm. and placements and all the rest. Is it a big enough move and trend within what you're seeing and experience where if you were that restaurant owner, you would make a move. I think there's a couple of factors you'd need to consider there. Firstly, do I own the restaurant freehold or not? 
uh, or is it a leasehold? Now, if it's a leasehold, how long is left on the lease? Now, this is really important things to consider because do I think that do I think that um, Melbourne and Sydney are going to turn into ghost towns and slums or anything like that, or are they going to turn into like a Detroit? No, I, I don't think that I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that our economy is uh, broadly stable enough. Do I think that the some of the foreclosures that everyone's forecasting and all of this kind of stuff and all the doomsayers are going to happen? Yeah, I do. I do actually think that that's going to happen, and I. Think that the, the the likelihood is they're going to happen in places like Sydney and Melbourne. You know, so do I think there is going to be an impact on Sydney and Melbourne? Yeah, I do. I do. Um, do I think that that is going to be so far-reaching that you would want to exit those markets if you had a fully established brand in that place? Not necessarily. And this is why my business opinion, more, more as much as anything else, not necessarily. So what I would do in that scenario is a couple of things. Firstly, I would I would consider how could I pivot my current business to make sure it, it sustains profitability, and so I can continue to operate in that place because things come back, things change, trends change, and people do. Once you know, international migration kickstarts again, people are going to start pouring back into Sydney and Melbourne, right? So, so you don't want to give up that foothold, particularly if you've created it for a long period of time. So you need to do a a, a SWOT analysis on what the current market conditions are. Is it if fifty percent of all the other restaurants are closing down, probably a good opportunity to stay open because there's less competition. If everyone's fighting to stay open, you're going to have to pivot hard, change your service, find a way to stay profitable, and then and then stay. Now, if you own freehold, that's awesome because over the long term, I you know I I think I don't think again I don't think I don't think Melbourne's going to turn into a Detroit. I think it'll I think it'll perform well over the long term. So you'd keep it. The second part of that though is, would I do that as well as potentially seeking out a new opportunity in a more regional location. And I think that's an interesting question because there are there are less barriers than there once were to doing that kind of thing. You know, there's, there's um, more ability. Like, for example, you could move to a, a regional town because you go, you know what, actually, I've got this place on Ligon Street. It's you know, if I just hire one one uh, restaurant manager, one pizza chef, and one barista, and they, I can employ them all full time, and that you know it produces enough net profit that it covers all of its bills and de-risks my position, and I don't need to be there, great, awesome. Put the thing on autopilot and walk away, and then maybe go, okay, well, where would I want to live? And if I wanted to live somewhere, where could I go to create another pizza shop where people don't maybe have a pizza shop, and I create the best Italian pizza in the world, and it's the best, and I could bring value to that community, and I could have a lot of fun doing it, and it changes the context to a position of fun could i move to could i move to um south central new south wales coastline and you know start a pop-up restaurant which could morph into something else would i have the ability to flexibly test that idea i think so and i think that's where the dynamic can shift even for a bricks and mortar business does that kind of answer your question I just realized how many layers are in the question I actually asked you and how terrible a question it was. Because, <laughs> I mean, you, you're mentioning so many things here, but if you're that restaurant owner and you've been doing this for 20 years, maybe sick of trying to park your car every day on Ligon Street because it's a nightmare, you realize all these yuppies with big bank accounts are moving to Yamba, right? It's like it's, it's not the worst decision I've ever heard or the worst rational of thinking that there's opportunity for you to get a lifestyle improvement and for there be the infrastructure in town to support you actually still having a restaurant. If you're a or if you're that hairdresser, yeah, all on. of them. The, the hairdresser, right? All, all these uh, you know, new, new high-income earners, in, I'm using this as the example, but you would have to see that a lot of cases, high-income earners emerging into these towns, more money to spend, more infrastructure, 
like it would lead to the ability for the viability of a lot of businesses or more businesses in these towns that previously didn't exist. You got, you got to remember there's two there's two components to it because there's a reduction in cost of living. So let's say you're a hairdresser in 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 Brunswick, right, in Melbourne. Now, I'm going to use both examples there. Let's say you're a hairdresser in Brunswick in Melbourne and you can again, you know, you maybe- only get, You only get half a haircut there. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I had to put that in though. <laughs> So you may you may decide again um, if you can if you, you you know it depends you may need to close down your business you may be you, and the, the SWOT analysis you do in your business you might go look you know what it's not viable to maintain this in this location and it's a short term lease anyway and I'm out of here but let's just say you took the same view when you can continue to operate the business potentially on a uh, on a reduced capacity and and then you go you know what I want to move to. I want to. I want to move to. I, I, I don't know. I'm going to say Bansdale because I decided that that I did. I'm just oh lakes entrance, right? So because I I want to live near the beach and it's I like it down there and it's all good. The cost of living is going to be lower, right? So your barrier to entry on a human level is lower. So your 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 need to create the same size business is lower. You don't actually need to produce the same amount of commercialism in order to sustain your own lifestyle, which is a hugely different thing because you can create a lifestyle business as well. Which, hey, look, a lot of people want to build huge, big, you know, mammoth, you know, multi-billion dollar companies. And that's totally cool too, but that's not the conversation. The other thing is like if you're the pizza shop owner, like tell me if you were in that scenario and you'd owned that pizza shop for 20 years and you're like, okay, you know what? I really, you know, you know what would be awesome if, is if we moved to South Central New South Wales and we started a pizza shop, but let's do something. Let's have a little fun. Why don't we grow all of our own tomatoes? Why don't we locally source all of the produce because we can because we're going to be actually connected to the local farms. Why don't we do all that and create a, a pure you know, farm to table. We'll grow all the veggies out the back of the shop. We'll only do takeaway and we'll just have like a little hole in the wall shop and we'll create the best pizza that Naura has ever had, you know, and and that changes the game because it puts the emphasis in business, puts the emphasis back on fun. Businesses prosper, I think, when there's passion. Now, you've got to think about the commercialization of it and you've got to go, okay, how does this functionally work? But if you can create something truly unique that is in line with not only your skills but also your passion and also the ability to commercialize that, that's where you start to create, a, you know, seminal and, uh, you know, culturally significant business enterprises. And I think that there's a huge – it's not just going, okay, well, everyone's moving to Yamba. Rich people are going there. Should I just go and start a business there? You can think about it with a variety of different vectors, particularly when you consider not only what is the return on cash, but what is the return on energy and what is the return on happiness. And I think these are – these are these are equally important things that we need to consider. You said something there that I didn't even uh, think about until this moment as well. Do, environments themselves um, have a huge effect on people. Like they really, really do. And uh, one of the things I'm almost thinking towards here is that let's pretend you open a restaurant. We'll use restaurants as the example. It seems to be the theme. It's kind of interesting that if you're in a big city, it almost encourages the hustle. It encourages yeah. the long hours. It encourages the mindset of capitalism and and more cars, just more in general, more consumption, more Gucci bags, all, all of it. But when you're in a holiday location, it encourages lifestyle behaviors. Like if you've got a restaurant uh, again on the beach and you're watching the surf every day, maybe you get a bit more motivated to go for a surf every morning instead of um, go on the restaurant chain. So I wonder if fundamentally the environment changes the way some of these people think and go about business in general. Well, of course it does. Your, your environment. I would hope so. <laughs> your 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 environment your environment c- controls your state. You, you know you're not going to be. 
you know, you you may be healthier, maybe calmer, you may be all of these kind of things by simply positioning yourself in an environment that gives you a deeper level of satisfaction. And it's it's all of these things that are combining together to create this a new world of opportunity is probably what what I would say, where people where the 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 limitation of people's ability to achieve financial prosperity, emotional fulfillment, health, happiness, all that kind of stuff is is limited only by people's ability to think about what they want. I find it so interesting how many layers of motivation we've been able to look at. So it's not like one way of thinking, but even throughout this, I can keep coming up with more and more reasons on why I like um, more dispersed locations than ever before. And I suspect we could go on on many, many more of them. Is there any more you want to add in onto this trend? And I will put in one more thing before we move on. My bias right now is, and this is a bias and an opinion, but if I was starting a new business, I would look to regional. I've already said it. I think the opportunity is there. There's too many things pointing in that way. Yeah, I think it's going to come down to a couple of things, though. Like, it's going to come down to what is the industry? What is the purpose? What is the intention of the business? You know, like, you know, the reality is, uh, and again, just anchoring it back to Yamba purely because I'm here. Not again, not not to try and just pitch. an example. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not to try and pitch Yamba, but you know, you can kind of see already that there are some more gentrified restaurants here. Like just a couple, just a sprinkle, and, and you can kind of see that like a few years ago that wouldn't have been a thing. You would have had the local bakery and the local fish and chip shop and and whatever, and, and maybe a couple of cafes. But as these kind of trends change, it changes the the type of people who want to live here. The, the, the type of entrepreneurialism and how people are going about doing things. And I think it, I think that there is a, a beautiful cross, uh, a, a beautiful kind of meeting place where we can combine, you know, business sensibility and profit with uh, our desire to live a fulfilled, fulfilled life and live in a good community and support all these kind of things together. And I think that, I think that for most small to medium enterprises, I think that's a desirable place to be. And it doesn't have to just be for, you know, people who want to run cottage businesses either. Like as I kind of said earlier in the conversation, I've got I've got friends and and people that I know that earn mul- like create multiple seven figures in business. Like they're, they're very successful in what they do, uh, financially successful and they have large teams and good-sized companies and stuff like that. And they're all saying the same thing. Well, yeah, why, why, why could I not? Why could I not? have all of the things I want and what would need to change about what I currently have to make me more happy and more fulfilled. And I think that we're on a on a golden age of fulfillment, if I'm really honest. Oh, super exciting time to be alive. Now, I am mindful of time here, Goose. Is there anything else you would like to wrap into this, other, uh, into this conversation? Otherwise, we'll wrap this one up and we'll take it into another episode. Mate, I, I think I think it's probably a good good point to wrap it up. And there's a lot there's a lot we could go. Obviously, there's so many ways that we can go into this, and I, I'm I'm super down with exploring this in a in another episode as well because I think that this this impact is um like we've only scratched the surface of it. You know, if, for this impact not only for businesses but for property investors, it's huge. It is huge. And it's I think inf- it's that inflection point. There's actually yeah. like a deep change that's just happened. It's like someone uh, is in a ship and it was like, you know, someone's turned the wheel a little bit. Someone's just spinning that thing free reign at the moment. Like, Yeah, absolutely. And, and look, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, and I'm, it's not my own quote or anything like that, but you can't create demand. You can't create desire. Desire already exists. 
our job as investors and business owners is to just work out where that de- desire exists and stand in front of it. And that is where we're at right now. If we can see those trends and if we can understand these macro trends and what's actually really happening and driving these kind of aspects, not only in business, but human behavior and the economy and all that kind of stuff, we have the ability to stand in front and, and benefit from that. And it doesn't need to be in a way that's like rooted in greed. It can be rooted in joy and prosperity. So. Awesome. Well, let's wrap this one up then, Goose. An absolute deep conversation. I'm just hopeful people are starting to pay attention to what's going on in their own life here and, and in all honesty, get on board. Oh, look, absolutely. I think Embrace. if I, I can just say something quickly before we wrap it up, the people who take advantage of this trend, I would say between right now and middle of next year are the people that are going to prosper most greatly over the next 10 years. And I think I, I really, truly believe that because I think by the time we get to the middle of next year, most other people are going to start to catch on and then you'll start to be, you, you're going to be part of the mad, maddening crowd. And I think right now is an opportunity that exists in business, in property for people to, to out, radically outperform uh, the rest of the marketplace simply by taking action a little sooner. So, Awesome insight, Goose. Cool. See you on the next episode.